Now we're going to be jumping around uh, a few spots in chapter 24 of Genesis, so if it feels like we're bouncing around a little bit, um, we are, okay? It says, Abraham was now very old, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. Then the servant left, taking with him ten of his master's camels loaded with all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for Aram Naharim and made his way to the town of Nahor. He had the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. It was toward the evening, the time the women go out to draw water. When he prayed, Lord, God of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside this spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. Make it be that when I say to a young woman, Please let down your jar that I may have a drink. And she says, drink, and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Before he had finished praying, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. The woman was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever slept with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. The servant hurried to meet her and said, Please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too, until they have had enough to drink. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water, and drew enough for all his camels. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Have a seat. Thank you, Sam. There's quite a bit here in Genesis chapter 24. Let's begin with a short word of prayer. Father, we say thank you that you've come close to us in Jesus. And like I said a moment ago, we we need more than a killer sermon. We need your presence. We want you. and We want to be transformed into your likeness. We pray that you would... Do that thing that you sometimes do, which is to take something that's quite ordinary and turn it into something that has great redemptive potential. Pray for miraculous healing in the room today as well. We just pray that people would come alive in, in, in their faith and God move in power amongst us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so um, our world tends to celebrate people who stand out the most beautiful, the most charismatic, the most talented, the wealthiest, the most powerful, and so on. For example, here we have the cover of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World. On the cover this year is Elon Musk. It's hard to deny that. And there's no doubt that the people on that list have genuinely made a mark on the world. However, the story of today is this. Behind the limelight, history has been shaped quietly by uncelebrated supporting characters. Uncelebrated supporting characters. For example, Alan Turing, 
uh, was a 20th century mathematician who was enlisted by British intelligence during the Second World War to decipher the Enigma Code. Some of you are familiar with this story. The Enigma machine uh, gave Nazis a distinct advantage over the Allied powers because their encryption was so advanced, it was considered completely unbreakable. So the Nazi commanders were able to securely transmit their battle plans, strike orders to the U-boats in the Atlantic. This was a big deal, a massive advantage. And at the time that Alan Turing was hired, the Germans were dominating the Allied Navy. It wasn't even close. Several thousand ships were sunk by the year 1940 because of the U-boat torpedoes. And Alan Turing was like this socially awkward, we found out later he's a closeted gay man. He had a terrible time working with people. But he was a savant when it comes to decryption. And over the course of 18 months, he cracked the code. And all of a sudden, the Allied powers had the upper hand in the battle in the Atlantic. They knew Hitler's battle plans and the exact locations of the U-boats no less than 15 minutes after the original message was sent. So that single accomplishment of cracking the code completely changed the course of World War II. Jay Copeland from the University of Canterbury writes this, Turing stands alongside Churchill, Eisenhower, and a short glory list of other wartime principles as a leading figure in the Allied victory over Hitler. There should be a statue of him in London among Britain's other leading war heroes. Some historians estimate that Bletchley Park's massive code-breaking operation, especially the breaking of U-boat Enigma, shortened the war in Europe by as many as two to four years. At a conservative estimate, each year of the fighting in Europe brought on average about seven million deaths. So, the significance of Turing's contribution can be roughly quantified in terms of the number of additional lives that would have been lost if he did not achieve what he did. So you're reading between the lines there. Essentially, a conservative 14 million lives were spared because Turing broke the Enigma code or he solved it. Now, as a guy, considering I'm a guy who's Grandfathers, both my grandfathers, returned safely from that war and proceeded to have children who became my parents. I'm glad that dude was good at math, and I'm glad that dude did his job. Who knows who'd be y'all's pastor if he did not crack that code? And yet, despite playing an invaluable role in the war, if it were not for the imitation game and the acting talent of Benedict Cumberbatch, the vast majority of us, including myself, would have no idea that he ever existed. Sometimes, uncelebrated supporting characters make a massive impact in the world. And that's the story of Genesis 24. An unnamed servant is faithful to do his job and accomplishes a great victory for the kingdom of God as a result. We don't know who this man is, and yet he is responsible for carrying forward God's plan to redeem the world through Abraham's line. And that, and that blessing goes on to the next generation, Isaac, Rebecca, Esau, and Jacob, and on down the line. So this is a massive moment in the history of redemption. And at the center of it is a catalyst. And that catalyst is an uncelebrated supporting character. And he's there accomplishing God's will. This is an interplay between God's providence and our responsibility to do what God has commanded. And by the way, this is, there's a lot of hope for us. You don't have to be elite. 
You don't have to be elite to be used by God. Now, of course, you are elite. You are the smartest. You are the most beautiful. You are the most charismatic. Who do I think I'm talking to here? This is a room full of mostly millennials. We're all the best. You're all the best. Everybody gets a trophy. Um, But in case the person sitting next to you isn't, then this one's for them. So here's the basic plot points of Genesis chapter 24. Um, It goes like this. Well, first of all, verse 1, Abraham's very old. And he's very blessed by God. During, uh, during the scripture reading, Phil, in early 70s, bumps me and says, I relate to that verse. And I said back to him, you know, he was actually probably about 140 years at this point. So he's twice your age, Phil. Uh, you still have a long ways to go. So the fir- uh, first takeaway, Abraham's very old. And he's, it says he's very blessed. He's blessed by God in every way. So the first takeaway is this. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. Now the Bible gives us hundreds of examples like this one of God keeping his promises because we are often waiting on God to fulfill his promise. And while we're waiting, our faith can often falter, but that's not what the Bible tells us happens in Abraham's case. In Abraham's case, the scripture teaches that during the waiting period, Abraham grew strong in faith. That's Romans chapter 4. Also, King David testifies in Psalm 37, one of my favorites, I know it's some of yours as well. It says, wait patiently on the Lord. And then later he says, I was young and now I am old, but I have never seeing the righteous forsaken. And he's testifying from his experience that your waiting on the Lord has a purpose. My personal conviction as a pastor is walking through with this with a bunch of people right now, that uh, when you're in a season of waiting, it's because the Lord wants to cultivate integrity in your heart. Uh, God is after your heart. He wants to cultivate integrity in your heart. And often waiting on him is how he accomplishes that. He's also wanting to cultivate intimacy Intimacy with him, that is one of the goals of your faith is to be intimate with the Lord, have a loving relationship with the Lord in the language of Jesus, abide in him. While you wait on his promise, God is performing a very important work, often deep beneath the surface of your exterior life. Are you guys with me? Okay, sweet. Verse two, Abraham calls his oldest, most trusted servant to find Isaac a wife. Yes, in case you didn't know, things worked a lot differently uh, in the ancient world. Um, Abraham makes his servant swear an oath by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, not to find a woman from Canaan, where they were now, but a woman from Abraham's home country of Ur, which was hundreds of miles away. So you may have tons of questions. I know I did when I first started studying this. But don't get the wrong idea. Abraham is not being like racist about interracial marriage or something like that. He actually, what he's concerned about is he wants his children, he wants his grandchildren to be undivided in their worship and in their devotion of Yahweh. And the Canaanites, where they were living at the time, were Baal worshipers. And their entire culture centered around worshiping other gods besides the Lord. And so Abraham lived with this deep conviction in his heart that God had called his family to be holy. And the language of the Bible, holy means like in, in the context of the people of God in the world, we are called to be in the world, but separate from the world, inviting outsiders in to relationship with God, to enjoy his blessing. But then he also commands us, he commands them, he commands us to be careful not to be corrupted by competing world systems. And this takes a lot of vigilance 
on the part of the people of God, and that includes us today. There are many, many different things that are vying for your worship and your allegiance. Abraham knows this, and so he is very careful when it comes to choosing and finding a wife for his son Isaac. Now this is a theme that you can track throughout the entirety of the scripture. You can see it all throughout the historic writings from the Old Testament. It also appears again in the New Testament, not the least of which 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now this applies probably especially to those of you who are single and who are considering marriage. And um, I can speak from personal experience for most of us who are married, uh, married, like deciding who we're going to marry is probably like the second most important decision that you will ever make. And among the things that are at, at, at play here are your family's devotion to the Lord. Your family line's devotion to the Lord is what's at stake. Now, obviously, I think the primary thing here is when we read that first from 2 Corinthians is that if you're going to marry, which may be for you, it may not be for you, but if you're going to marry, uh, marry a Jesus follower. Marry a Jesus follower. Some of you were married, I know many of you in the room actually were married after, or excuse me, you became a Christian after you were married. And so you're maybe on a journey with that person who may still not be a believer, may not be a believer yet. And, you, and if that's where you are today, I would just say, keep it up, great job, stay faithful to that person. And we're also here for you as the, as the family of God. But more than just like marry a Christian, not a non-Christian, culturally speaking, just because someone says, puts their hands up, checks the box, I'm a Christian, does not mean necessarily that they're committed to following Jesus. Now, the Bible doesn't have different categories, Christian, Jesus follower. However, in the Western world, it is possible to say, I'm a Christian, check the box or whatever, but worship someone or something else at the heart level. It can be love for self, it can be love for money, it can be love for your career, it can be love for material possessions, it can be love for many different things. Whatever you love most is what you're worshiping. So take it from someone who has walked with many different people through very challenging times in their marriage, people who have gone through extremely painful divorces. I've had to look people in the eye and tell them, hey, I, it's, in good conscience, I cannot recommend that you actually get married. I do not think it's a wise decision for you to be married. I've had to do that several different times with couples that have asked for my input, and I've had to do that. I've also seen amazing stories of God redeem very broken marriages and reconcile marriages that felt, felt like we're on the brink of disaster. I've seen amazing, miraculous answers to prayer. I also have had the opportunity to marry some awesome people like last month, Bree and Andrew, in just a week and a half. I'm also get to marry Cody and Rachel. They were here at the first gathering. So excited for that. But take it from me. If you get married, you want to marry someone who you are sure loves Jesus and worships Jesus from the heart. And you might be thinking to yourself, that's kind of a tall ask. That's a high bar. Certainly in our culture, it is. Proverbs 31, verse 10 says, an excellent wife. Who can find? She's far more precious than jewels. And man, I relate to that so much. When I think about my wife, I am so grateful that I found her, that the Lord found her for me, and by far the second best decision I've ever made in my life to marry her. And the fact that she yet said yes is still shocking to me at times. And I resent the fact that you laughed at that, Dad. Um, And I just want to say like a word of compassion. I know there are many of you who are single 
and not by choice, and you've been asking God and you've been waiting for many years to find someone like what I'm describing here, and it just hasn't happened yet. So just a word of compassion that the Lord sees you, you're not alone. We are also here for you as the people of faith, and I pray that the Lord will answer your prayer. And then I also think that there's a distinct possibility for some of you in the age in which we're living that singleness may be your vocation. In fact, Jesus died as a single man. He was never married, and he was the complete picture of what it means to be human. And so you can live a very full and meaningful life as a single person. And personally speaking from someone who has seen a lot of really tragic marriages, that it is better it is better to stay single and give your life to following after Jesus than it would be to compromise greatly and marry someone who does not love the Lord God. Moving on, the servant knows that what Abraham is asking him is a crazy and tough ask with tons of variables. Notice what it says in verse 5. He, check this out. I think there's at least a little bit of like questioning in the servant's heart. He says, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me back to Canaan. In other words, he's saying, let me get this straight, Abraham. You want me to travel hundreds of miles back to Ur, a place we haven't been to in 50 plus years, and find a woman that I've never met and convince her to follow me back to marry a guy that she's never met. And Abraham goes, yeah. And in fact, make sure she says goodbye to her parents because she's not going to be going home anytime soon. This is a wild, wild story. This is enigma code level of difficulty, folks. Like, this is no joke. I'm sure your boss has asked you to do some crazy stuff. Like, you've worked some overtime and you've had some unrealistic deadlines. But I think that this guy's got you beat. He's got me beat for sure. The travel alone uh, with a wedding dowry on his back would have been a life-threatening task. But despite the degree of difficulty and despite not having enough of the details, this man does his job. He does his job. Look what it says in verse 10. It says, Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master, and he arose and he went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. So this is the first thing that we learned from the uh, servant's example. He's faithful to obey when it's difficult, when it's hard. See, here's what I'm seeing here with this man. It, it, it's, uh, it, see if it tracks with other things you've read in Genesis. He does what he's clearly told to do, even though it doesn't make sense. And then at the same time, as we're going to find as we go along, he depends on God for the improbable and for the miracle that he's asking for. Now, for those of you who have been following along in our series so far, um, what do you think we should call that? What do you think that that is? Has, does this look familiar to other things we've seen in the story? I think it is. I think we call this Abrahamic faith. The servant has been influenced by Abraham. Abraham's been walking by faith for over 50 years now, and now his right-hand man is following his example. The quest that the servant's about to go on, it has all of the same elements of unknown and unpredictability and improbability as Abraham's journey. And the servant has his instructions, and then he's, he has a resolve to implement those instructions. And this is the essence of walking by faith. This is the essence of Abrahamic faith. 
then and now. So the beautiful thing that I think is unfolding here is that God's project to redeem the world, it's going to come through Abraham and his family line, right? Well, instead of it just being now a man of faith walking alone in the desert, there is now a community of faith that is forming. A community of faith is forming. Remember, God's plan was, to, for, was for his blessing and the reward of following him to spread to all the families of the earth. It used to be just Abraham and Sarah. And now his servant has learned from his example and he's following in Abraham's footsteps. I love this. Now, the obvious question is, what is the area of your life that God is calling you to trust and obey him? And it may just be, it may just work out that you influence others to follow your example as well. The question is, what kind of example will they be following? Will they be following a genuine example of Abrahamic faith? Or will they be following something else? Um, if some of you, uh, you've been around for a couple months now, you know, uh, during Lent, we did 40 days of nonstop around the clock prayer for spiritual awakening. And, uh, some of you have been here for a long time. You've heard me rant and rave about this for years now. We finally did it this year at Lent. And there's just this little room back here. There's one little, one little room. And we decided, you know what? We believe God is asking us to pray 24 seven around the clock for a thousand hours, 40 days of Lent. And when we launched that, uh, it does not take a savant mathematician to know that that, that was not going to pencil out, right? We have three prayer meetings throughout the week, and in total, we have about 25 people who come to those prayer meetings for one hour once a week. And I was suggesting that we pray for a thousand hours straight, right? So this is kind of a wild and crazy idea. And the goal wasn't necessarily to hit the milestone, although it was fantastic. Uh, we, we ended up hitting our milestone. We actually completed our goal of praying around the clock for those 40 days. But the goal was to, to encourage you all, encourage me, encourage our church to seek God's faith with urgency and passion and a little sacrifice. According to the scriptures and according to my wife, sacrifice is one of the ways that you demonstrate love. And that's exactly what we were trying to cultivate in our hearts towards God in the prayer room. The goal was also to disrupt your life rhythm just enough to redefine the way that you pray over your lifetime, not just for the 40 days, but for your lifetime. And the goal was also to break through what I call the ceiling of apathy and the general sense, the contentment that we have in the West of basically no interior life and no intimacy with God at all. I basically just got to the point where I was gonna say, we need to charge after seeking God as a matter of most importance. And so that's exactly what we did. And my goal was that it would actually begin to reshape us in the way that we actually pray. And it worked for a good number of us. It worked and it was amazing to see so many of you in the prayer room each and every night. And it was remarkable. In fact, uh, just a couple of days ago, my, my family and I, we were at my parents' house swimming at their pool. That's the good thing about having grandparents with a community pool is you get to crash anytime you want. So that's what we did. And then on our way home, um, out of nowhere, my son Judah, which is, he's done this about five times since we closed the prayer room after the, the 40 days of Lent. He said, Dad, I want to go to the prayer room. And I have this internal commitment in my heart that anytime anyone in my family says, I want to go to the prayer room, I'll drop whatever it is that we're doing, no matter what it is, no matter how important it is to me, and we'll go to the prayer room. And so that's exactly what we did. I dropped Isabel, I dropped Grace off at home. They wanted to do some other stuff, and Judah and I came to the prayer room. And on our way over, Judah was planning out our agenda. He said, well, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to take communion, 
right? Because we have communion elements set aside in the prayer room. It's just one of the ways that we turn our hearts towards God, remember what God has done. And I said, buddy, you remember what, what communion is all about? He, he walked through the gospel in a way that makes even a preacher proud. He was going on and on about how Jesus forgives of sin and his blood means that we are, uh, uh, we are forgiven and we are set free. And he was saying all of this. It was his whole idea, not mine. And then he started to list some of the other things that he wanted to be praying for when we got here. Got here. So we came here and we did that. And it was amazing. It was so cool to see. He went beeline uh, for the communion table. He grabbed the communion elements. We prayed and we took it together. And then after that, I have this little hack. Just parents, if you want your kids to pray, here's my suggestion. Have a few M&Ms. It works. Everything you pray for, you get an M&M. You pray for this, you get an M&M. You pray for that, you get an M&M. It works beautifully. Uh, it's a little bit of incentive. Is that okay, Phil? Okay, all right. So Phil says it's good. The Godfather says it's good. So we're going to go with it. So, so after we get done with that, um, I, I, we, we start praying for some other things. And I, I taught him a few things that I like to do when I pray, some listening prayer. We cried out to God. We knelt on the little kneeler that's in there. We opened up the scriptures. We started reading that through. And it was beautiful. Then it got to the point where, you know, the sun's setting. I wanted to go to the first, first Street Rapids and throw rocks into the river. And so I was trying to wrap things up. And Judah said, wait, Dad. He didn't want to go. And he said, hey, remember the last time we were here, you took the oil from the lamp that's on the altar in there, and we anointed the room. And he says, I, I want to do that again. My five-year-old son. And so we spent the next 10 minutes, and I found the oil, and we put it in our hands, and I taught him what it is to consecrate something to God, what it is to dedicate a space to the presence of God. And he prayed for you. He prayed for you. He prayed for you. That when you come to the prayer room, that God's presence would meet you, that you'd experience his, your, his peace and his joy, his love. That was his idea, not my idea. And the beautiful thing about that, by the way, he had like 12 other moments that were horrible this week. So don't let me try and paint the picture that we've got this parenting thing nailed. We definitely do not. But the thing that I came away from from that was when, after he had gone to bed, I was sitting on the back porch. I was, I was just kind of talking with Grace about what the experience was like. And I realized that the goal that I had set for our church had actually begun to take root in my own family. My, my son now has this new level of hunger and desire for, for God and his presence. He loves spending time with him. That's something that has happened. So again, I am far from a perfect father and far from a perfect leader and pastor. Um, but if there's one thing that my kids are going to take from my life, I want it to be that God and his love is what's most important. And so far it's beginning to stick, which is pretty awesome. So you can follow Judah's example too if you want. So the servant is faithful. But he's also faithful when no one's watching. When no one's watching. Think about this. Abraham isn't able to check in on their Slack channel. There's no such thing. As soon as this, the servant is out of eyeshot, man, you know, he could have gone to Mykonos and sat on, the, sat on the beach if he wanted to. Abraham would have had no idea. But he chooses to follow through. 
he actually implements what God had asked him to do. And I think one of the reasons why a lot of Christians in the West are disillusioned, I hear a lot of people who are disillusioned with God. And, um, and I think one of the reasons why is because we're inspired by the stories in the scriptures of hope and of power and of promise and all of that. But in our hearts, we lack an inner resolve and daring to implement his instructions. So we're excited for, about God's vision, but we're not willing to risk devotion. We're not willing to risk faithfulness. It was risky for that servant to keep on that road. And that's exactly how it works. He was blessed and he was rewarded because of his faithfulness, not the other way around. We're asking God to bless us before we ever commit to following his instructions. And that is just not how Abrahamic faith works. So if we want to experience the power and the promises of God, I think we need to risk faithfulness and be willing to implement his instructions. So what's the area of your life that no one sees? What's the area of your life that no one sees? Are you being obedient, faithful, walking in integrity before God. In your financial decisions, how you run your financial life. How do you treat people that can't give you anything in return? How do you spend your free time? Are you walking in integrity with your free time? So the next thing we learn from the man's example is that he prays for divine guidance. I swear I'm not cherry picking verses here. This is just exactly how the story of the Bible works. About every page, there is this kind of call to radical prayer. And, he's, and he is rallying, he is praying for divine guidance. Check out what it says in verse 11. It says, and he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the water, uh, by the well of water at the time of the evening and the time when women go out to draw water. And he said... Or, and he prayed, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. So this is good. He proceeds to ask God again and again to show him the woman who will become Isaac's wife. And God answers him. Single guys are like, wait, wait, what's the equation? And like, how do I pray for this? What am I praying for exactly? Um, yeah, no, this isn't necessarily a rigid uh, formula to follow, but, but certainly Abraham is praying and asking God, who will be Isaac's wife? And this, takes a, this, this man's prayer takes big faith. It takes big faith. And I was thinking about this this week as I was getting ready for this message there has been no point so far in the story of Genesis that's calling for uninspiring levels of mediocre faith. Are you seeing that anywhere here? I'm certainly not. I haven't read anything like that. I've heard of Noah forsook all of his relational clout with his community, spent years, decades even, building an ark. Abraham, Sarah, now this guy hanging it all on God's promise. They're seeking the Lord for direction, and we want to seek the Lord for his direction too. And we do that through this kind of prayers of faith. Now, speaking of uncelebrated supporting characters in big prayers, I want, you to, I want to tell you about this guy named Daniel Nash. Daniel Nash was a failed church planter in the 1800s of uh, upstate New York. We really shouldn't know who he is because his early life was uh, wrought with all kinds of failure. So what do you do after a failed church plant? Well, he linked arms with a better preacher, which is probably what I would end up doing if, you know, Riverbend goes bust someday. <laughs> I'm teasing. That's not happening anytime soon. Uh, but Nash became a catalyst in the Second Great Awakening. He, he linked arms with Charles Finney. And every time Charles Finney would set off for a new city, 
Nash would uh, rally, uh, mobilize a group of people who would travel ahead of him, and they would establish a cell of prayer warriors who would confess sin and cry out to God to prepare people's hearts to respond to the gospel each and every time uh, Finney went to a city. And then when Finney would finally arrive, he'd preach the gospel, and over the course of their lifetimes, both Finney's and Nash's, hundreds of thousands of people turned to Christ. It's probably one of the most top five influential movements of the 1800s. And every single outpouring in all the history of the church has been marked by this, a, a, a small group of people who have prepared the way with a resolve to pray with fervency and passion. Now, again, that should have been forgotten. He almost was. In fact, they wrote a little, um, a, a little biography. It's out of print, but you can find it on Amazon. And you can also visit his, uh, his graveside in upstate New York. And this is what his epitaph reads. There it is. This is where he's, here he lays. Daniel Nash, it's kind of hard to read. It says, laborer with Finney and mighty in prayer. That's an epitaph. That's it. This is what he's known for. This is what he's known for. So um, I've just kind of resolved in my heart that this is the, the calling on our life as a church, is that maybe we're the sort of unnamed pioneers for a great awakening in our time. And um, when we were starting the prayer room, uh, I was up here, you know, you guys know me. I was just up here kind of getting enthusiastic and hyping people up to come and pray. And um, I have a lot of really great people in my life, a lot of people who care about me a lot. And so um, after they heard me rant and rave for weeks on end about the prayer room, um, those people that really care for me, they came up to me concerned for my well-being. And they know how stubborn I am as a human, which meant that if there was a big wide open space in the evenings or in the middle of the night here at the prayer room, they knew me well enough to know that I would be the stubborn guy who gets out of bed and comes in here and prays every night if that's what it took. And so because of that, they were coming to me and saying, listen, Andrew, we love you. We're excited. You're excited. We will pray, but don't go too crazy. Protect your well-being. Protect your sleep. Again. Just good-hearted people who care for me. And if I was close to that person, I would say to them, you know what, thank you. I promise I'm not going to go too crazy. But if we were really close, like my wife and a few others, I would say, I, I, thank you. I, I promise I won't go too crazy. But if I have any spiritual leadership in your life at all, frankly, I, I do not need you to be concerned for my lack of sleep or for my physical well-being. I need you to level up, level up your resolve to pray for, for, for an awakening to the gospel of Jesus in our time and in our space. That's what I need from you. So before you decide to be one of my friends, you have to know it comes with that. Like I'm just kind of a lot. I literally for years people have been trying and telling me that I'm a little bit too much and maybe I am. But think about it from my angle. We lose sleep for all kinds of things if it's worth it to us. Growing up, I got up at 4 a.m. every single day to work out. I thought I was going to the Olympics. That was crazy. <laughs> I'll lose sleep to catch a plane. Next week, I'm going to lose a night's sleep driving to the Tetons. That's been on my bucket list, and I don't care how long it takes. I'll drive through the night. I lost sleep writing papers during my undergrad. A friend of mine is hiking the Pacific Crest Trail right now, and she's losing sleep every night because she's laying on a crummy foam pad in the dirt. Why is she doing it? She wants 
the experience of the mountains. Every person that has a baby is losing sleep every night to feed and change diapers. And every person, every person I know who's fallen in love has lost sleep talking with their partner till all hours of the night. That's a part of your story. When you fell in love with the person you ended up with, if you're married, that's a part of your story. Some people lost sleep standing in line for a new iPhone. Some people lost sleep last night binging a crummy docuseries on Netflix. So is it so crazy to suggest that we might actually lose sleep to seek God's face? Personally, no, it doesn't. To me, it actually seems crazy to be unwilling to do it. That's what seems crazy to me, considering who he is and considering his promises. Yes, you can pray any time that you're normally awake and do it, definitely do it. But what I have learned in my life of prayer is that sacrifice amplifies our prayers sacrifice amplifies our prayers. And this is what the man, the unnamed servant in our story perfectly understood. He was traveling for hundreds of miles, risking his life, could have been killed because of the dowry he was carrying on his back. And yet he was faithful to God and was willing to sacrifice and God heard him. And he's written into the history books because of that. Now, this is where very good people in my life help me edit my intensity and sort of bring me down and graciously soften my edges. And uh, I'm, I need that. I, I, I need that in my life. And you guys play that for me. So don't let me try and like twist your arm or like shove you, push you into the prayer room, something you're not wanting or willing to do. But considering the things that throughout your life you've lost sleep over, Think about it. What have you lost sleep over? Does spending intentional time in the quiet with God sound so crazy to you? It really doesn't to me. In fact, I think that kind of sacrifice might even be necessary for some of us to break through the apathy and our contentment of a life of basically no power and Holy Spirit. So the next lesson we learn from the man is his example. By the way, we're almost done, I promise. Um, uh, the man's example, uh, we learn gratitude. He's grateful. When the man's finished, by the time the man is finishing his prayer, already Rebecca comes out, a beautiful young woman, and she offers him a drink and then offers to feed his camels or water his camels, just like he asked in the sign that he asked in his prayer. And then after that, this is what it says, immediately following that, the man bowed his head, worshiped the Lord, and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master, Abraham. So the question is simply this. Have you seen God at work in your life lately? Have you been paying attention to the ways God's been answering your prayers and how he's been present to you? And have you stopped lately to thank him for his provision and answered prayer? I would suggest to you that this is a critical component of a life of faith, is stopping to thank God for all that he has done. And uh, the scripture reminds us, by the way, of the many things that God has done for us. Now, the other hero of this story is, is, is Rebecca, right? So Rebecca doesn't get a lot of um, praise in Genesis 24, but she's another unsung hero here. She offers uh, to bring this man, the servant man, back to her place for the night. 
the man comes home with her, meets her family, Bethuel and Laban, and he explains what God has been doing with Abraham and Isaac in the land of Canaan. And it had been many years, but they had heard of Abraham's movements. And so he explains what had been going on. Then he explains his prayer and the signs and everything that he asked for. And then he asks Rebecca's family if she will become Isaac's wife and go with him back to Canaan. And they said, let us call the young woman and ask her. She was not forced into this. So they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she says, I will go. Again, she never met Isaac. She couldn't look him up on Instagram to make sure that he was her type. (laughs) And yet she was willing to follow the Lord without all of the details. What does that sound like? It's Abrahamic faith. It's all over again. The man of faith has now grown and spread, and now there is forming a community of faith, the family of faith. Now, this is a major moment in redemptive history. Isaac and Rebekah end up continuing Abraham's line through Jacob and Esau, and eventually the 12 tribes of Israel, and all because there was this unnamed servant who was given a very difficult assignment without all the details, and he was faithful to do his job. And because, of course, Rebecca was courageous. That's what we learned from Rebecca. And by the way, the Bible is filled with these amazing stories of women, particularly women who are full of courage. So what area of your life is God asking you to follow him without all of the details? I think that is Abrahamic faith, not to be cavalier or foolish, but if God's asking you to do something, even when it doesn't make sense, you follow him. And I think in order to do that, we need to cultivate, like Rebecca, cultivate a heart of submission, dependence, and courage. So here's how we end. Uh, You might feel a little bit like that unnamed, uncelebrated leader or person. Maybe you feel a little bit like Rebecca. The hope is that you do not have to be a standout elite to be used greatly by God. You just need to be faithful, obedient, courageous, strong in prayer. My intense sort of critical inner dialogue when I'm up here preaching and just about anything I do is pretty nuts. And my my mentor, Phil, always tells me, hey, God hasn't asked you to be great. He's asked you to be faithful. Love God, love the people, preach the word. He said that to me dozens of times. It's probably kept me from throwing in the towel a few times because sometimes my inner dialogue can be pretty intense. You do not have to be elite to be used by God. You just need to be faithful, obedient, courageous, and strong in prayer. Psalm 84 verse 10 says, I'd rather be a doorkeeper or a servant in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Rather be a servant in God's house than dwell with the wicked. Much later in the story, Jesus invites anyone who would be his disciple, not just the elites, to follow after him. And I think what that means to us is this, is that our attitude should be, as Jesus' followers, hey, we happily play the supporting role. We are happily behind the limelight because we stand in awe of the Lord's fame. It's the Lord's fame that you and I are are pursuing and want. John the Baptist in John 1 says he must increase, meaning Jesus, and I must decrease. So God is the one who gets glory. He's the one who gets famous through our lives. At least that's the intent. That's the story of Genesis 24, and I believe that's the story of our lives as well. If we're living well, we will make Jesus famous. So how is your life of faith increasing the fame of Jesus in Bend? How is your life of faith increasing the fame of Jesus in Bend? I um, 
A couple of weeks ago, we were at a dance recital, Isabel's dance recital. She danced at the very beginning, and then it was like three hours long, and then she had to come out for another bow. So that's kind of the way that they get you. It's a whole racket they have going there at the dance studio. Um, so anyways, uh, my family's there, and uh, my son Judah and I may get about an hour or so, and then Judah's just like, he's five. He just needs to move, and he's got another two hours. I'm looking at the thing. There's like two more hours worth of dance. So we uh, decide to jet on over to Alpenglow Park, which was really close by to the place, and we go to the bouldering wall. We're at the bouldering wall, and he starts making friends with this girl who's a couple years older than him, and they're climbing together and having a great time. I'm antisocial on a bench, which is pretty typical for me. And then, uh, but the mom is over there seeing our kids play, thinks it's cute, so she wants to come make friends with me. So I struck up a conversation with her. She turns out to be an amazing person, really, really cool person, and she was telling me about her life here in Bend with her daughter. And she said, you know, she's asking us where we go to school and blah, blah, blah. And she said, we go to the Highlands, all right? Kenwood School, the one that's right down here. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have a friend who teaches there at the Highlands. And they looked at me and they said, well, who is it? And I said, Mr. Glogal, Cam Glogal, um, he's a member of the church here, leads one of our communities, incredible guy. And literally it was like I had said I was friends with President Obama or something like that. Their, their mouths hit the floor and for like 30 minutes, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating, for like 30 minutes they're like, and we love this about him, and we love this about him. He's an incredible teacher. They kept saying he's filled with magic, which I was like, that's the Holy Spirit. But he was like, he was like, they're like, I don't know, it's just something magical about him. He's just so filled with magic. That's what they kept saying. And to the point where I'm like, literally, lady, keep, like, can we move on from Mr. Glogow? But she was amped on Mr. Glogow, and I get it. He's a great dude. And then she says, hey, so how do you know him? I was like, oh, now here's where I screwed up for him. I'm going to tell him we know each other from church, and that's going to, like, blow up his whole, you know, witness there at the school or whatever. But sure enough, I just, yeah, we know each other from church. And she goes, she had a very, like I'll never forget, a very noticeable shift in her demeanor. She grows quiet, very pensive, and she goes, you know, I have a really complicated past with religion and church and faith in God. And then she punctuated that sentence with a pause. She says, well, but if Mr. Glogow is a person of faith and goes to that church, my guess is, it's got to be a, a really good church. That was her response to that. Now, she does not know that I'm the pastor here. I'm just Cam's friend. But I found that to be so, so interesting and exactly what we're talking about here. Exactly what we're talking about. A man who has lived faithfully in his vocation, like uh, has his classrooms filled with magic, the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, the love of Jesus, brilliant instruction of her, of her daughter, deep care and concern for them as a family. This is like bringing fame to Jesus. And now, although she has all kinds of complicated relationships with the church and people, who knows if she'll walk through here someday. I hope she does. The reality is that she trusts a Christian. She trusts somebody who follows after Jesus. And I, that's exactly what we're talking about by making the fame of Jesus great in our town. People ought to know that there's something magical about you because of how you love. So who is following your example? And if someone does follow your example... Will they be led into situations where God's power and provision are manifest? Will they be led into situations that require God to show up? 
That's the question. You've heard me say before that I believe we're living in a time of great potential for there to be a new community of true Abrahamic faith rising from within the church of Bend, possibly even a move of God. I believe that you and your friends and me and my friends and our kids and their kids can be a part of that. There's two reasons why I think that's the case. Number one, right now there is great resistance from secular culture. And that is breaking down fragile Christianity that has been propped up for generations or decades, I should say, by entertainment and consumer cultures. I believe that is necessary to happen. It's necessary for the the fragile Christianity to sort of be burned away like the Bible calls chaff. So in order to have a renewed, revived church, I think we need to have some of the fragile Christianity sort of broken apart and burned away. And number two, what I've seen consistently over the last seven years is that there is a holy discontent rising from the minority of youth, like early, late millennials and early Gen Z who are resilient in their discipleship to Jesus. They're looking at a church that is compromised morally too many times to count and has lost God's love for the world. And they're demanding a return to the sacred faith. And I think it's brilliant I think it's exactly what is needed. And the question is, will that renewal movement pass us by? Pass us by. Because we are unwilling, or we're walking back from radical steps of trust and obedience. Or will we get to be some of the unnamed pioneers who model courage, model faithfulness, model trust, model obedience to our people? And will our kids get to grow up in that kind of environment? Will the next generation get to grow up in that kind of environment where they're able to look at our faith and actually want to follow our example? Question is, will we step in faith? Will we walk in faith?